as we think about Christ and His substitutionary work on our behalf. I was particularly, I guess, struck by the song that we sang, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, because it's a downer song that's not a downer song. And I don't know if you were thinking about it at all. Hopefully you weren't thinking, oh, bummer, what a, what a, what a dirge this is. It's, the content is encouraging. It's about the, the steadfast love of God for us in Christ, and yet the feel of the song is, is, is pretty dark. Uh, I, I appreciate songs like that because it seems like they're few and far between, and yet they're necessary for us um, because life isn't always happy clappy. At least mine isn't. <laughs> and yours is, isn't either, right? Um, even when you read the Psalms, some of them are super high energy, awesome, sort of happy clappy. And yet some of them are, are more um, inspirational um, and some of them are just dark because that's how life is. And so Pastor Mike Grimes and I talked about it one time. We read an article and talked about how one thing we want to do as pastors is try to even teach Christians how to how to live life in all kinds of scenarios, including mourning, because music should help us through all different kinds of circumstances, and one, one of those is mourning. So I want that song sung at my funeral. <sighs> Which brings up a whole other topic. You know, funerals are like total denial of reality. This is awesome. It's a celebration service. I'm not going to celebrate when any of my family members die. I'm going to mourn. Because death is not good, and death is bad, and death is tragic, and death should bring mourning. And I'm going to celebrate if they're believers because it means new life, right? It's both and. It's not either or. Um, but we've gotten off track a bit as Christians these days, and we don't even have an outlet that we're supposed to have and think, this is terrible. I feel terrible. Um, okay, I'll stop preaching about funerals. Um, there's hope, Right? because of what Christ has done. But just trying to encourage you as a pastor to be a thinking Christian um, and thinking about these issues that really are important for us. How about this for a quote? They were there for him. It's a great quote. They were there for him. It's a great quote in the right context. It's a terrible quote, as I heard it this last week, when I was channel surfing and I came across the Search for Jesus CNN special. Finding Jesus. It's supposed to be a documentary. I would call it a mockumentary. Finding Jesus. In describing Jesus' friends and those who surrounded him, the conclusion was, that the, the quote that stuck out to me most was, they were there for him. And I thought, you couldn't be more of an expert at missing the point entirely. They were there for him. It's tragic. It's terrible. It's awful. I couldn't believe it. It was a great way for me to take out my angst as I was on my trainer trying to sweat even harder and being upset. They were there for him? That's the point? What we have to understand is that the whole point of Christianity and Christ's coming is that He was here for us. 
And if we don't understand that He was here for us, not we were there for Him, then we will always get it wrong and we won't have any hope and we won't have any lasting, sustaining joy unless we understand first and foremost that, that, that this is a football moment. Duh. He was there for us. And now we're on to something. And that's what Isaiah 53 is about. And we're going to focus our attention on Isaiah 53 so that, again, we can be sustained through the the good times and the bad times so that we can know what Christianity is about. We can know what Christ is about. We can know the love of God for us. That He was there, specifically there for us. Isaiah 53 is a classic Christian text. It's, it's about substitution. It's about Him dying in our place for our sins. Uh, it's awesome. And unless we, we don't keep this at the forefront, front, forefront of our thinking, we'll be losing Jesus. We won't be finding Jesus. And we have to remember that He was there for us. Now, as you find Isaiah 53, if you haven't already... Maybe this helps, maybe it doesn't, but the reason we're in Isaiah 53 today, apart from God's providence, uh, would be because I was trying to think about what to preach the Sunday before Christmas. I thought Philippians chapter 2, that's a good one. He humbled himself, uh, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, he, he was a servant, he suffered, then he's died. Then God highly exalts him for his perfect work and studying that, thinking this would be a great Christmas text, but then you realize pretty quickly that Paul's referring to Isaiah 52 and 53. So then I thought, I'll preach Isaiah 53. That'll be awesome. But I never got my work done in Isaiah 52 because that was too awesome. So um, my head just is is spinning, and we're going to do Isaiah 53 today. um, And understanding, uh, again, he's there for us changes everything. Isaiah 52, 13 does say this, by the way, as a lead-in. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He acts wisely, obeying the Father's will, going to the cross, and as a result of that, he's highly lifted up. That's Philippians 2, that's Isaiah 52, and that's Isaiah 53 as well. If you'd like to take notes this morning, three crucial things about Jesus from Isaiah 53. Three crucial things about Jesus from Isaiah 53. Isaiah Isaiah's writing in the 700s, um, I think starting in 740 BC, so this is prophetic. Um, you hear all kinds of stories about reading this to Jewish people, and there's some fascinating stories. The one that sticks out in my mind is where uh, a Jewish man who'd become a believer in Jesus as Messiah, um, that I was listening to speak one time in California uh, at our church there, he said he, he loves to read this text to his Jewish friends who don't believe in Jesus as Messiah without telling them where he's reading from and to say to them, I'm going to read a passage to you from the Bible. You tell, you tell me where it's from. Uh, And he said, uh, on multiple occasions, the response is something like this. I'm not sure where you're reading from, but it's obviously one of your Gospels. So, just, it's a great text. Um, It's a Christian text. We should call it that. Okay, number one, first crucial thing about Jesus. Number one, Jesus isn't the one we were looking for. Jesus isn't the one we were looking for in our fallenness, in our sin. How about verses one to three? Verse 1 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Who's going to see this? Who's going to know this? What sinner on planet earth is going to see Jesus and say, as he really was and as he came, he's the Messiah. He's the one. He's the power of God, the arm of the Lord, the power of God for salvation. Who would do that? Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What's the image there? It's not promising. When you leave your garden to go on vacation and the struggling plants that don't get watered for two weeks, they're, they're, they're probably not going to make it, right? Like a root out of dry ground. Not promising. He had no form or stately form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was not the one we were looking for. Jesus was not the one that the people of God were looking for. Even in John chapter 1, his, his own people didn't accept him. And they were the ones who said they were looking for him. So when you're a fallen human being like us, like they were then with a perverted view of reality, uh, you're, and even if the Bible says this is how it's supposed to be, it's not what you're going to be looking for. You're looking for someone esteemed. You're looking for someone who's beautiful. You're looking for someone who you can try to emulate and be like because you think you're good, and so if you can find a really good-looking person and try to be like them, then everything will be happy and life will be good. But in Isaiah 53, we see that this is not how God works especially when God is coming here in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to solve our sin problem and deal with the effects of sin, which would be suffering. He's going to come as a suffering one to solve the suffering problem. He wasn't the one we were looking for. Now, one thing I do want you to notice before we move on, another thing I should say, is just... Maybe how, how much better Jesus is than you even thought he was. Because if you look at verses 2 and 3, specifically, you'll see that this, is, this reaches even further back than the cross. This, this covers all of Jesus' life. He grew up in verse 2. From, from, that's, that's from earliest stages. Talking about him growing up despised, rejected by men. That wasn't only at Calvary, though it was especially at Calvary. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Again, this reaches way back. Which helps us, helps us by the way, to understand Philippians chapter 2. In verse 8, he was obedient to the point of death, even, like especially, exclamation point, ultimately, even death on a cross. But we do need to understand and remember that his whole life was a life of suffering. From the very beginning, he was not highly esteemed. Thus, he was born in a stable. From the very beginning. Suffering, 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 ultimate suffering. Because he's coming to help us, to rescue us. Filled with a life of suffering. It's really fantastic. Helps us to appreciate grace. 
helps us to appreciate Christ and, and what he's done for us. So Jesus is the one, but he's just not the one we were looking for naturally. How about now number two? The second thing that's important. Jesus is the successful substitute. He's the successful substitute. We see this in verses four to nine. Now I say he's the successful substitute because you have all kinds of prefiguring, you have all kinds of substitution going on, and you have the sacrificial system, and you have the Passover, and all of this life for life kind of thing going on, anticipating, waiting for, but it's waiting for him. He's the one. He's the ultimate one. And then in the verses we're about ready to read, it's all about substitution. And if you're new to Christianity or if you're old to Christianity, just make sure you know that a major, 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 major theme in the Bible is substitution. We all understand substitution. We understand when a a soccer player breaks his or her leg and someone goes in for them and plays for them, they're the substitute. And they need to succeed on their behalf and substitute teachers. And we all understand it's, it's in place of. Well, Jesus died for our sins. See, in place of. And it comes up again and again and again. Again, it's why it it rubbed me so the wrong way in in the mockumentary, Finding Jesus, that he was there for us. (laughs) Excuse me, as they said, they were there for him. No, he's here for, in place of. If you lose that, you lose Christianity. And, and now that you know that, and most of you know that anyway, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see it all over the place. You say, oh, in the New Testament, it spells it out clearly. But look at all the different kinds of substitutions that happen in the old that are getting us ready to think that way. It's awesome. So keep that in mind as we go. And it just doesn't get much better than this. Verse 4, surely he, Jesus, has borne our, see substitution, our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Right? He's doing what he's doing on our behalf. And yet fallen human nature sees that somehow God is punishing him. In the, in the wrong sort of way, for things he's done wrong. No, God is punishing him, pouring out his judgment upon him, but, it, but it's for us because he loves us. I think it's interesting even where it says in verse 4, uh, our griefs, our sorrows, uh, those aren't sins. Those are the effects of sin. Now we're going to get to the sin parts, but, but Jesus came and experienced the effects of sin in a fallen world. What we should experience forever and ever and ever, he's experiencing those and he's going to bear our sins. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Think mortally wounded, right? Pierced like in battle. He was mortally wounded for our transgressions, for our transgressions, that's sin, violations. We step over God's line. He was pierced mortally wounded for our transgressions. We should be mortally wounded, and he is. He was crushed. Think of in battle, right? When, when you crush your enemy, you totally defeat them, right? We crushed them. Yeah, he's crushed, totally defeated. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Another word for sin, for transgression, for violation against God's law. For our iniquities, for our sins. Upon Him was the chastisement, as in the judgment, that brought us peace. Ah, peace with God. Ultimate shalom. And with His wounds, or by His wounds, we are healed. Restored. Made whole. We'll talk more about that in a little while, I think, but maybe just at the end there. By, by His wounds, we're healed. His wounds heal our wounds, right? He's mortally wounded so we don't have to be. It's awesome. Verse 6. All we, oh, universal, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one. That's like Ephesians chapter 2. We learned about that. To his own way. And yet, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the rebellion, the iniquity of us all. Makes my, my eyes kind of scrunch down. Think about that. We've all turned to our own way. How about that? Think about that in, in the face of God. Right before God's very eyes, because He sees everything, and God says, here's what I want you to do. This benevolent, kind, gracious God, but He's God. He says, here's what I want you to do. And before the face of God, in your face, we might say, we turn our own way. God says, go this way and things will be good. It'll be good for you, it'll be good for others, and it will honor me. And so right before God's own face, we've all, it says, turned and gone our own way. You know, fist in the air, so to speak. It's defiance. It's offensive. It's treasonous we all owe it to God to treat God like he's God and act like his creation subjects children whichever one you'd like to use whichever one makes you feel better so you can feel worse <laughs> okay. I mean it's in your face and yet, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, that's what happens on the cross when the Son is judged. The just for the unjust. The Father is treating the Son as if he's committed that, that cosmic treason. As if he had turned his own way. He hadn't, but we have. Verse 7. Talking about Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. Just to be prophetically precise, he says, and with a rich man in his death. Kind of ironic. Let's make sure we sneak room in there for Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he wasn't anti-government, deserving crucifixion in the Romans' minds. He didn't act the wrong way. He didn't even say the wrong things. And yet he was crucified. Crucifixion, which is typically reserved for, you know, anti-government insurrectionists, speaking of treason, rather ironic. Or people like murderers. That's why when we say Jesus was there, the thief on the cross, that's why you read commentators and you say, what you find out rather quickly, it wasn't like this guy committed petty theft because they didn't crucify people for petty theft. Maybe there was thievery that involved murder or something. But, it, but this is for the bad guys, the really bad guys. Horrific, horrendous. It wasn't, and it, and it was fairly common with those kinds of people. Happened to Jesus. Not in a common way because he's the only one who's a substitute. And yet, it, this happened to him, and he didn't open his mouth, he, he, he didn't object. Let me ask you this question. Why? Why would Jesus not open his mouth and say, This is not right. I'm perfect. He was perfect. This is unjust. This is unrighteous. I'm perfect. If Jesus were going to the cross for himself, then he would have needed to say those things. Jesus was going to the cross voluntarily for sinners, in place of sinners. And so he doesn't say anything. Representative, substitute for sinners, sent there to do that very thing, and he does it. It's amazing. Just a couple of additional items before we move on. I want to go back to verse 5 where it says we're healed. Um, restored, made whole. I just want to bring it up because I don't know when we're going to be in this passage again. I try to do it as often as I can in different ways because it's so abused by um, abusive Christians. Um, It doesn't say we will be healed if we have enough faith. It says healed. It's done. Restored. And that would include physical health. But it does so 
in an ultimate resurrection kind of sense. That's why I can say it in the past tense. It's like Romans chapter 8, right? Romans chapter 8 says, glorified. It's done because the work of Christ is done because he's been glorified. He's been resurrected and glorified. So it's as good as done. So when people say, well, this is for your healing, and then, you know, like John Wimber, I saw John Wimber with my own two eyes sit in a wheelchair with lung cancer, and he could only get a few words out before he had to squirt and, and get something to soothe his throat, and he, shortly, he died shortly thereafter. Didn't do much for his book, Power Healing. See, he's selling something to people that doesn't even match what the text actually says because he wasn't healed. But if he were a Christian, he's healed in the ultimate sense, not in the here and now sense. Otherwise, no Christians would ever get sick and no Christians would ever die. But all Christians are guaranteed ultimate health one day and ultimate life one day. So don't be tricked by shenanigans. My friend Emmett, who runs our bookstore, used to say to me, I'm still praying for my healing pastor. And I said, your prayer's already been answered, Emmett. Now, I've prayed for Emmett's physical healing in the here and now, and God could answer that in the affirmative or in the negative. But eventually, every single one of us are going to die. Right? But that prayer, in the ultimate sense, has already been answered. Because Jesus' work is done. Therefore, we have been healed. It's as good as done. It's going to happen. Glorified. Duh. Romans 8. And so if you say to me, would you please pray that God would heal me? I will do that. And then I'll also say, and your prayer's already been answered in the ultimate sense. Enough of that, at least for now. Maybe we should also look at another camera, camera angle on this. Um, just, just remember, the other camera angle on this would be from the sun's perspective. Um, what happens to the sun is terrible at Calvary. Make sure you look at other camera angles, other lenses, if you will, and see that the Son does this voluntarily. In Ephesians chapter 5, which we saw recently, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay? That doesn't make it easy. But we're not seeing that lens here today. Um, but this is all about the love of God. Not just the Father, but the Son and the Spirit as well. We, we won't go there right now, but in chapter 54, verse 8, we hear about the love of God, the everlasting love that's involved here. Isaiah 54, verse 10, the steadfast love of God. That's what's bringing this about. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the same thing. Okay, let's move on. Number three, Jesus... Third thing to know about this, about Jesus. Jesus is rewarded as the faithful servant. 
Jesus is rewarded as the faithful servant. And this is in verses 10 and following. And maybe what I, I, I just want to get you to think with me about this for a second. I think this might help. What we're about ready to read is like, a, uh, like Philippians chapter 2, like Isaiah 52. But what we're about ready to read is maybe more easily understood if I give you a preview. You've got the Lord Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, okay? And He has His servant. And His servant carries out His will. It's Ephesians chapter 1. The will that was established before the foundation of the world where we saw the Trinity involved. So the, the Lord, Yahweh, has His servant carry out His will. As a result of that, the servant is rewarded. The servant is exalted. And those the servant represents benefit. Right? Not rocket science. You, you all could have figured that out. But if you have that in mind, some of the details that might be kind of confusing make way more sense. Now, what's kind of interesting about that is that it, it uses treaty language. It uses ancient world covenant language. Now, this doesn't fit perfectly exactly, but let me explain what I mean. We have examples of this outside of the Bible. Where there is a great king and that king conquers a land, he might be over all kinds of regions where there are servant kings. We might say they're lesser kings, right? And he's over the whole, and he says, I'm in charge here, I'm in charge now. <laughs> and, and it'll be good for you if you do my will, if you follow my plan. And here is my plan. I'm in charge, I can tell you what the plan's going to be. And I want you as my servant, kings, my servants, to follow my plan and I'll protect you, I'll take care of you, it'll be good for you, and it'll be good for your people. If you want to be fancy that, that the lesser kings are vassals and the great king is a suzerain. Okay? The suzerain, the great king, and the vassal kings, and they're in this formal relationship. A formal relationship is a covenant. And he is Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. They can't just do whatever they want to do. If they do, it'll be terrible for them. But if they do what's asked of them in the formal relationship, in the covenant, it'll be good for them. It'll be good for them. They'll be rewarded. And not only will they be rewarded, it'll be good for the people in their regions that they represent. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2. The servant who humbles himself and is highly exalted as a result. And he's highly exalted to benefit his people. This is what we see in Isaiah 53. We see this all over the place. And if you keep it in mind that this is not a new concept, it makes more sense. You go, oh, this, this helps me. So I hope that helps. If it makes it more confusing, just forget everything I just said. Um, the Bible is true, whether there are vassals and suzerains or not. Um, let's read it with that in mind. Verse 10. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We're calling this point, this is point number three. Jesus is rewarded as the faithful servant. He's rewarded as the faithful servant, and so are his people, is what we're going to see. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is the will, this is the plan. He, the Lord, has put him, the servant's son, to grief. When his soul, the servant's soul, makes an offering for guilt, he, the Lord, shall see his offspring, that would be the servant's son's offspring, those he represents, he, the Lord, shall prolong his days. There, there, there's life after death. He's going to put him to death, and yet there's going to be prolonged days, so there's life after death. The will of the Lord, here it is, here it is again. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, in the substitute's hand, because the substitute carries out the will of the Lord. So you have the will of the Lord being carried out by the Lord, and you have the will of the Lord being upheld and carried out by the servant. He's loyal. He's faithful. He's doing what was asked of him. And so he's going to be rewarded and his people are going to be rewarded. It's amazing. We're not going there, but think Ephesians 1.5. According to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. What is purposed, what is planned, what is agreed to is being carried out. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. How about that? Out of the anguish of the son's soul, the, the terrible anguish, awful judgment, out of the anguish of his soul, it says, he shall see and be satisfied. So, yes, we might think of the Father as satisfied because the Son atones, the Son does what is right. Yes, it's true, the Father is satisfied, but not only that, the Son is satisfied. As awful and terrible as it is, He's following the will, the plan, and He knows that it's right, and He knows how it ends, it ends in redemption, that is successful, and He's satisfied. So it's awesome, it's like a trick question. Who is satisfied in the atoning death of Jesus, the Father or the Son? Yeah, stop giving me false decisions, right? The answer is yes, they're both satisfied. He's satisfied with it. Then it says, fascinatingly enough, in verse 11, by his knowledge, think experiential knowledge, okay? The suffering substitutes experience is by his knowledge, what he goes through. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, righteous is always in relationship to the law, always. By his knowledge, the righteous one, oh, the law keeper, the law upholder, by, by what he experiences, the righteous one, the perfect law obeyer, the righteous one, my servant, the vassal, make many to be accounted righteous, considered law keepers, and he shall bear their iniquities. So by his experiential knowledge, okay, shall the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
This is on fire great. Okay? I mean, it just like it doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get more basic than this. It doesn't get any more Romans 3, 4, and 5-esque great. I mean, this is the great exchange. This is substitutionary atonement. This is the great work of Jesus. This is, this is where it all happens. By what Jesus goes through, he, the righteous one, being treated like he's the unrighteous one, because he's in place of unrighteous ones, transgressors, aggressors like us, this happens. And, and what comes about is the positive and the negative. Make many to be accounted righteous. God accounts us righteous, even though we're not. We're credited with His righteousness. We're credited with His law-keeping, even though we're not law-keepers ourselves. We're sinners ourselves. And so we're, we're not inherently righteous, but we're accounted righteous. God is an awesome accountant. Okay, But He doesn't cook the books. Because there really and truly is righteousness that can be accounted to us. It's Christ's righteousness. It comes from somewhere. This is fantastic. We're accounted righteous. We're accounted law keepers. This is where I always like to say, God can look at you and say, I accept you. I embrace you. Not as one who went their own way did whatever they wanted to do, I accept you if you're trusting in my son as if you've loved me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself, thought, word, and deed. Yeah, he does. Because you're accounted righteous. That's why I also like to say to people, true or false, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Trick question, right? We say it's not true because no one's perfect. Then nobody's going to heaven if that's all you have to work with. Because perfection is required. Let's change it a little bit. But we're accounted perfect because of Christ's perfection, right? If you, if you don't understand that, you're going to think God grades on a curve, you know, and you, you totally don't get it. You don't understand how great Christ is and how perfect He is. We're accounted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Fabulous. Awesome. Let's say let's say I keep going. <laughs> By the way, this is what can allow you to like Christians that you don't like. Because you might be thinking, I don't like them because you know what? They don't live up to my laws, right? They don't meet my standards. And they don't meet God's standards either. So I don't like them. In fact, I might even be tempted, if I'm an unbeliever, to think Christianity isn't true. Because their life is not perfect. I know it doesn't measure up to God's standards and it doesn't measure up to my standards. If that's the case, though, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity isn't about me being able to live up to God's standards or yours. Because I'll be the first one to cop to the guilt. Accounted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. I loved it that we had a baptism a couple of weeks ago. And here is a 
imperfect young man. As much as we might like him. But he's being baptized, showing everyone that his identity is actually in Christ, not in himself. Accounted righteous. It's awesome. But that's not all. And it says, are we still in verse 11? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end, and he shall bear their iniquities. So there's the negative side. The positive is, we'll be accounted righteous. We'll, be, we'll, we'll receive positional status of righteousness. But he also bears our iniquities. He not only does the right thing on our behalf so that we can have right status, he bears our iniquities. He, he, he atones for our sin. It's both. How about verse 12? Therefore I, I the Lord here, therefore I the Lord will divide him a portion with the many. See, this is back to that treaty, covenant, king, suzerain, vassal kind of idea. Therefore I the Lord will divide him a portion with the many. That's what, that's what happens when you're, you're, you have spoils, right? The spoils of war. That's what happens when, when you're going to share what you have with others. Because of his obedience, the servant, because of his work, I'm going to give him a great reward, and it's not only going to be given to him, right? We'll divide him a portion with the many. Who are the many? The many are the ones he represents. That would be the us. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. He's going to share with the many. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's so many things we could say about that. I, the first thing I would just want to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior! It's awesome! I do at least want to point out, because time is fleeing, that, that he makes intercession. Yeah, that's because he's not dead. And, and he leads us in not being dead. Because by his wounds we're healed. But he's where we're not yet. <laughs> okay? But he, he lives to make intercession for us. The transgressors, the sinners. Because of his atoning work, he now accepts us as well. He's satisfied with his work for us also. It's awesome. Awesome, 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 awesome. Now, don't close your Bible just yet. But just stay right where you are for a second. Now let me read Philippians chapter 2 because Paul's drawing upon 52 and 53 of Isaiah in what he says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself, that's Isaiah language, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Reward for loyalty. For carrying out the will and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then he goes on to eventually connect us to him. It's awesome. 
So, let's end this way. How do you respond? You respond like I do, and you go, awesome, 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 and you make fun of me. And that's just my way of expressing gratitude and enthusiasm and excitement. Even when I'm not excited, when I need to have sustaining joy in dark times, in my heart, it's awesome, awesome, the sure, steadfast love of Jesus that's deep. But there is an inspired response. I hope you found my responses inspirational, but there's an inspired response. Isaiah 55 gives us an inspired response. 54 develops more of the same. It's awesome. But how about Isaiah 55, a passage I memorized as a brand new Christian, wonderfully out of context. I'll take Bible verses where I can get them. Um, but how, how about keeping it all together? Because the theme is still moving forward. I know that it is because 54 keeps it together. But how about just a sampling from Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. This is free. You can, you can buy it with no money. You can, you can enjoy this. He's using figurative language, obviously. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. It's a great appeal. Because of the perfect work of Christ, the one who paid it in full, he's, he, it's an invitation, right? Come and enjoy the banquet feast. Why in the world are you using all of your, 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 your money, figuratively speaking, on false religion and human achievement? It just doesn't make any sense. He's saying in light of the greatness of what we see here, come. Come, it's a call to believe. It's a call to trust in this one. It's a beautiful, rich kind. Come, not because it's going to be a bummer. Come and delight yourself in rich food. How about verse 6? Seek the Lord while He may be found. That's the right response. Seek the Lord when He may be found. There's a sense of urgency. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And how can he abundantly pardon? Because he has made a perfect, satisfying, substitutionary atonement. So it's just and right for him to do, to say, I pardon you, and I pardon you abundantly. It's extraordinary because Jesus Christ is mighty to save in an extraordinary way. Father, we are delighted this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are thankful that He is a loyal servant. We are thankful that we're not there for Him just like His disciples were not there for Him, but He is here for us and was there for us. Please use this to, to build us up in the faith and make us 
stronger in the faith so that we might be able to live steadfast, Christ-honoring, joy-filled lives even when circumstances are less than perfect. May your mighty love in Christ sustain us to the very end. Thank you that in Christ, by His work, by His wounds, we have the absolute promise of ultimate wholeness and healing. In Jesus' name, amen.